the gentleman we just listened to pretty eloquently put in perspective the situation I've been asked to address. There are many folks, Islam is a prime example of it, but as the gentleman who spoke before us took his perspective on this from having researched what Christians say about it, modernistic Christians join with the perspective of Islam and even some fundamentalists with a caveat that scripture has lost its liability because it was copied and then copied and copied, translated, translated, copied, translated, copied, and that every time that happens, it loses a little bit of its credibility to the point where it comes today with its credibility in pieces. Even some fundamentalists teach that, though they're very quick to add, say it's only lost a little bit of credibility in that process. And it's an important issue. It is an issue you find being addressed all the time on the internet by folks who are trying to encourage the spread of modernistic Christianity, and, but also folks who are apologists for Islam. It is a primary point. The gentleman addressed it very openly, honestly, and, and clearly tonight. Do we have a credible Bible? Why do we think it's credible? I could spend a long time on this, and in, in settings certainly have, but I wanted to come at it from this example that is so often used. Look at all the copying that's been done. Doesn't that do something about the credibility? John chapter 10, verse 35 through 38, makes a pretty powerful statement. The title of a book I have written on this that we have out in the foyer comes from this passage of Scripture. You pick up in verse 35. Verse 34, Jesus answered them, Is it not written in your law? I said, You're gods. And he called them gods unto whom the word of God came. And the scripture cannot be broken. That is a principle the Lord Jesus laid down that you cannot break the scriptures. And it goes on to address this. And he said, Believe, trust the works. And if you don't trust the works, they have the miracles, etc. But that, that's addressing the problem. Scripture cannot be broken. It's important we get a handle on that. And uh, it's important you understand that when God gave us the scriptures, this wasn't just something blindly thrown out, said you have to accept because somebody said it. it. Scripture came to us in a very, very different setting. And the message of Christianity. First of all, the Bible and the message of the resurrection of Christ that proves who he is, came by eyewitness testimony. If your Bibles are handy and you want to go to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, where you have the very statement of the gospel. It's word gospel comes from two Greek words that mean good news. A lot of what people present as Christianity wouldn't be good news. A lot of what people present as religion would not be good news. Do your best and hold on and hope for the best. That wouldn't be good news. Any of us who were honest, as the gentleman who spoke before me was, know that there are times when we're going to be frustrated with our own performance and with our own example and with our own limitations. If I was told today to trust my best effort or to trust my effort as part of what's involved in making it possible for me to go to heaven 
that would not be good news. That'd be frightening and scary. But in 1 Corinthians 15, we pick up in verse 3. For I delivered in you, first of all, that which I also received. You go back to verse 1. Moreover, brother and I declare unto you the gospel. That's what he's explaining to us. The good news. What's the good news? Verse 3. For I delivered unto you, first of all, that which I also received. How that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. That's the good news. You want the rest of the good news? He was buried. And they rose again the third day according to the scriptures. That's good news. And the very next passage of scripture. And he was seen as he was seen of Cephas, then of the twelve. And it goes on to list the number of people and number of occasions where there were eyewitness testimony to the resurrection of Christ. Bible Christianity was never based on, well, this is what we're telling you, you better believe it. When Paul went to Mars Hill, and there on Mars Hill, Mars Hill had, had been designated that people of Athens wanted to make it the religious capital of the world. Frankly, I sus, I'm suspicious they thought that making it the religious capital of the world would bring a lot of money in. But they dedicated Mars Hill. Any religion was welcome there, any religion was protected there. Any religion can have a statue there. Every religion can have an idol there. Any religion can have an altar there. And uh, they had a place, the Oropagus, for religious assemblies. And they would have various times religious teachers to explain their religion. And uh, when Paul is there, he immediately tells them, you're too superstitious. That's not the way to build common ground, by the way. <laughs> right in his first statement... He's saying, we don't have common ground. You're too superstitious. I know a lot of modern English translations want to take the word superstitious out and put in religion. And he's saying, you're too religious. That's not what he was saying at all. A superstition is something you believe without a reason. Okay? My parents were from the hills of eastern Kentucky. They were genuine hillbillies. They wore that title as a badge of honor. They were very superstitious people. My mom especially was terrified of black cats. I don't know how, somehow that just got stuck in my consciousness, and I virtually always owned a black cat or two for my whole adult life. have one now. But my mom was terrified a black cat would cross her path because she'd be doomed. I asked her one time, I said, Mom, why are you so afraid of black cats? She said, I don't have a reason. It's a superstition. <laughs> so it was exactly the truth. She didn't have a reason. Paul told the folks gathered on Mars Hill, said, your fault problem is you're too superstitious. Each of you has this story that is the foundation of your religion. And you believe it without reason. As he goes on and develops a message, he, he refers to the tomb of the unknown God. Uh, that's been discovered by archaeologists, by the way. It's in the uh, British Museum. I've seen it. it. It's quite an impressive thing. And, and they said, you know, we know with all these gods, all these religions, we're still missing something. So they put up an altar to whatever it was they were missing. And they put the title on it to the unknown God. And he goes on to explain that unknown God is the creator God. The one that created us all. You all have these gods you created. 
The unknown God to you is the creator God that created you. And then he goes on to say that God's not willing that any should perish. All should come to repentance. And he goes on then to explain everybody will be judged one day by that man. And then, so you want to know who that man is. It's the one that rose from the dead. Right here in the 1 Corinthians 15, it's the explanation of the gospel. And there it is. Immediately after it's explained, it's followed by the proof, the accounts. In 1 John 1, 1, John said, our hands have handled him. Our ears have heard him. Eyewitness testimony. Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 3 and 4 tells us how the, this message that was delivered was delivered with the though eyewitnesses and then goes on to say by the miracles that were so spectacular that it's interesting the historians of the time not only refer to Jesus, they refer to Jesus and the miracles he performed without there even being a question about that. There was no question about it. Because so many people, crowds of thousands had flocked to see the miracles and they'd all walked away having seen incredible things. That made its way into the common understanding as to who Jesus Christ was. He was a great miracle worker. You heard that in what the gentleman before me had to say, acknowledging Jesus as a great miracle worker who even had raised the dead. Say, how could people believe that? Too many thousands had seen it for it to be doubted. And so Christianity was presented not as something just to believe, because, okay, you pick that story, I pick this story, this guy over here picks this story. It's not our superstition. It comes with evidence and reason. Even the Jewish rabbis in the generations right after the time of Christ acknowledged that the Jesus who they opposed so thoroughly was a great miracle worker. But they just wrote that he did the miracles in the power of demons. You couldn't deny the miracles. Something supernatural had happened. And I know folks like to come along and say, well, there's no historical evidence of Jesus. Then why were the folks in the very, his very generation and the next generation and the next generation and the next generation writing to refute him if he never lived? They want to make it sound like ah, thousands of years later, hundreds of years later, somebody made him up. Why did so many people have to write about him if he didn't exist? Well, with that same vein of thought, God didn't just ask us to believe this story rather than the other stories. Okay? God didn't ask us to say, well, I, I like my story best. He gives us reason to believe and it gives us a reason to trust would you go to first peter chapter one with me it is one of a many scriptures that deal with the subject of preservation and again and again in these scriptures about preservation god will use a term it is a term of time it's not a term of time we should have trouble understanding 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 23. Being born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible, by the word of God, which liveth 
and abideth forever. Over and over again in the Old Testament and in the New, God refers to the preservation of the Word of God with this time stamp, forever, forever. Over and over again, it's forever. One case, it's forever and ever. One case doesn't use the forever time stamp and just says for a thousand generations, which might turn out to be forever, I don't know. But the concept is very clear and the message is very clear that God is promising to deliver his word, his teaching, his truth in such a fashion that it's going to remain with us. Go to Psalm 119. Whole Psalms devoted to the word of God. And it tells you a number of things about the word of God. And three times it says it will last forever. That is God's time stamp. Now, that is clearly not the time stamp of many modernistic Christians. It is clearly not the time stamp of many world religions. Islam probably goes farther than any of the world religions in acknowledging that there was something to Jesus in his ministry. But they like to escape from the requirements of the word of God by saying it's lost something through all this process. But the promise is forever and ever. But by the way, they will say, well, you know, there's all this copying and there's not that many copies and all that. Compare it to all the works that people don't question. Roman historian Tacitus, that people quote as an authority about the time frame in which he writes, there are 12 ancient manuscripts of his writing. 12. But that's considered authoritative. Julius Caesar's Gallic War. Ten manuscripts. The youngest of which comes 900 years after his time. And yet, there's not really a question. It's considered authoritative. Roman historian Livy. 20 manuscripts. The closest comes 400 years after his time. And yet, that's not particularly questioned as to being accurate. We have, if you would look at the lists on the internet, over 5,000 copies of the Greek New Testament. Now, that's the list on the internet. Let me tell you something interesting about that list. Several years ago, Dr. David Brown and I were asked to be on the board of an organization. Some people misunderstood our accepting. It's not a religious organization. It's a historical one. The Society for the Study and Preservation of the Majority Text, the traditional manuscript, the received text. People use a lot of different terms, Byzantine manuscripts. And uh, not everybody in that is a born-again Christian. They all believe, for whatever reason, the majority text is very important and should be preserved. And many of these 5,000 copies, they're owned by libraries, they're owned by museums, they're owned by churches, they're owned by private individuals. Many of them are in very bad condition because they have to be cared for very carefully to keep them from crumbling. And, and so this organization was formed just to offer some standard ideas about how to care for those manuscripts. And, and so produce some material, this is the way you want to store them and handle them and all that. And then also to photocopy them so it could be placed on the internet and people could view for themselves. So they, uh, as they were putting it together, 
somebody made the observation that it's the independent Baptists that run around talking about the received text all the time. So they thought they should have a couple of independent Baptists on the board uh, along with various other folks. And uh, so they approached Dr. David Brown and I to be on the board of that, which we accepted. It's been an interesting experience. And immediately after the website went up, a monastery in Greece contacted us and said, we wanted somebody to talk to. Said, we've read these accounts on the internet and we wonder where in the world you people in the Western world get your ideas. So we saw a list of 5,000 manuscripts. They said there's monasteries all over Turkey, Greece, and Cyprus that have thousands and thousands more than that. What makes you people in the West think you know about everything there is? <laughs> they said our monastery alone has another 1,100 manuscripts that are not on any of your lists. So I, we were all intrigued, and immediately I sent a message to them. So well, could you tell us because in our Christian world, the great debate is we have over 5,000 copies that reflect the majority text type, the traditional text type, and about 50 that are, at best, you could say, alternative to that. All of the New English Bibles are coming out based on those alternative texts. Yeah. So we have thousands. You really have two families. Yeah, one's called the majority text, for an amazingly simple reason. It's the majority. More than 99%. And, and the other side is less than 1%. So immediately I sent a message. Could you tell us how many of the 1,100 manuscripts that you have are majority text and how many are a minority text? The answer back was they're all majority text because no one would have bothered to have saved an alternative manuscript and then you remember boy one of the two most prominent of them was found in a wastebasket so apparently they didn't think it was worthy of saving either so that, that was all intriguing and then um, word got out about these additional 1100 manuscripts and as some of the leading textual critics who promote the minority text wanted to go over there and see them so they contacted them. They said, well, we've asked this group in the United States to be our representatives. And so you need to ask them. Well, that was kind of hard for them to do because they'd criticized the majority text position so much. But they finally called for a meeting at their board and our board to ask for permission to go see them. And um, they chose to meet in Chicago, which was wonderful because the area I live in. And so we met, got a room in an Italian restaurant downtown and we have a long table, and their guys are sitting on one side. I, we're sitting on the other side. I'm sitting right across from probably the leading advocate of the critical text today. Sitting next to me is a representative of the Russian Orthodox Church, which happens to be majority text. For whatever else you want to say, it's majority text. And, uh, boy, I, he just, it was amazing. He's wearing the red robe and all that, and... Um, Russian Orthodox, I thought he was going to speak with this heavy Eastern European accident, accent. Turned out he was from Texas. <laughs> he spoke with a Texas drawl. And I'm closing my eyes, imagining I'm listening to John Wayne while he talks. It was just amazing.
Then he says something incredibly profound to the leading textual critic across the table from us. He looked at him and said, you men think you are great scholars. He said, you're not. He said, every 10-year-old Russian Orthodox boy in the world is a better scholar than you are. He said, if you asked any 10-year-old Russian Orthodox boy, what do you trust, the 99% or the 1%? They would all get it right, and you don't. And then he went on to say this. He said, the comic book people are better scholars than you are. He said, if you could go into one of these Comic-Con conventions with original action number one comic, Origin of Superman, and um, he said, you went in and you had one, it was in good condition, he said, you could leave with a million dollar check for it. That sounds incredible, but I, I started paying attention and since then, somebody took one just the way he described to a Comic-Con convention in San Diego and got $1.1 million for it. There on the spot. And he said, that's, he said, if you walked into a Comic-Con convention, he said, I have an action number one, but mine's different than all the others. He says, do you know what they would pay you for it? Absolutely nothing. Because they would immediately know it was a fake. He said, the comic book people are better scholars than you. I looked at him and said, I'm going to tell everybody I came up with that. <clears throat> you see God did something unique in preserving the scripture he used the priesthood of all believers to protect the New Testament manuscripts in other words yes there were people who came along they did fake copies they did corrupt copies they worked their own heresy into it but so many people were familiar with the accurate manuscript that when somebody came along and said well this is it this is it they immediately rejected that as a fake yeah. which is why there are very few copies right. nobody ever took in their time any of those fakes and were able to convince a large number of people it was important right. it was not until the late 1800s that anybody could convince anyone that those manuscripts were important and you had the priesthood of all believers. In the Old Testament, God used the priesthood of the Old Testament believer. It was their job, to, the scribes, the priests, to copy the scripture. They had very strict rules for copying it. You study the rules, they're, they're just almost beyond comprehension. When they made a copy, it had to be identical to what they were copying. The middle letter of the page, top letter, top corner, top corner, top corner, exact number of lines. If you made a mistake, it's over. Throw it away. And the Old Testament priest preserved the Old Testament text to the point there's very little discussion about it. Guess who the priests are in the New Testament? Every believer is referred to as a holy priesthood. And God used the priesthood of the believers. For example, there's discussion about the canon, what books actually made up the New Testament books. There were a lot of phony books circulating. Somebody would come up with an idea they wanted to propagate. They'd, make, they'd write it. They'd say, well, this is scripture. They'd take the name of a biblical character and put it on there to try and get it accepted. Folks immediately rejected them. They never got a widespread audience. If you've ever read them, uh, 
Bart Ehrman put out, a, I think, 85 of them. I've read them all. I deserve some sort of reward for doing that. You don't have to read them very long until you know why people read this. That's not the scripture. One of them, for example, teaches that it's impossible for women to be saved. Without knowing who the actual author is, I'm just expecting at some point he had a bad experience with a, a female somewhere. Maybe more than one. Superman and Batman have already been mentioned tonight. Let me mention them again. I wrote an article entitled, Why Aren't Superman, Batman, and Spider-Man in the New Testament Canon? Because nobody reads it and thinks that actually happened. Well, you know why those books didn't make the New Testament canon? Because no significant number of people ever believe them. There's something the Holy Spirit of God does in the heart of a believer when the believer reads Scripture. And, and no other book, no matter how good, human authors, I have books I've written, human authors work very hard to produce something worth reading, but boy, it does not have the impact on you that the Word of God has when you're reading the simple presentation of the Scripture. And, and so believers knew. They knew instinctively. That's not Bible. This is. And so corrupted manuscripts never got a wide audience until our day when they got it among modernistic Christians. The pseudopigrapha, the false writings, never got a wide audience until the last 30 years when they got it among modernistic Christians. So when Athanasius is producing the first people referred as official list of the canon in 367, he wasn't saying, okay, this is what we're telling you is the Bible, is the New Testament, you must accept it. He was saying, this is what people believe, right. the scripture. When the first church council put out a list in 393, or another church council put out a list in 397, they were not saying, we're telling you what the Bible is, so you need to believe it because we tell you. They were telling you what was accepted by the vast majority of believers. The priesthood of the believers was how God preserved his word. That gentleman speaking earlier used a phrase I hadn't heard before, but boy, it's accurate in the point that I'm trying to make right here. When he said massive transmission, so many people were familiar with the scriptures, the word of God, you could not inflict a corruption on a large number of people. Just a few examples. When Erasmus produced his first received text and he wanted to leave out 1 John 5, 7, the public demanded he put it in. So uh, he was the great scholar. They knew. They did not have individual Bibles at home, but often the churches had a Bible, and you could go read the Bible at the church, and the church had been there, or that 1 John 5, 7 had been there. Luther had questions about 1 John 5, 7. It's the great Trinitarian passage. For some reason, folks don't like a passage about the Trinity. And Luther left it out of the German Bible, and as soon as he was dead, the Lutherans demanded it be put back in. He also wrote about wanting to leave James out. 
because James has been misinterpreted by so many people teaching salvation by works. It mentions justification by works, but not justification before God, justification before men. But, but James bothered Luther. He mentioned leaving it out, but the crowd demanded it stay. Say, but he was Luther. He led the Lutheran church. But the priests or the believers weren't going to be fooled. Right. <laughs> Take it a step farther. That would bother modernistic Christians and a fair number of fundamentalists. I believe the King James Bible is the accurate representation of that majority text in the English language. To start with, it's the one translated from the majority text. It wasn't until the 1800s when men came along and said, you know, we've been using the wrong Bible all the time. That, that scripture was lost for 1,500 years. The majority text is wrong. The, these minority texts are older and they're better, so we should follow them. But it's interesting to me, there has been for 150 years a massive campaign to try and convince everybody. Well, the intellectual people, the intelligent people, respectable people, the scholarly people all know that you should use the minority text, which is my Russian Orthodox bishop friend said is false scholarship. Tell us why. It's always been the argument of people who want to intimidate people's beliefs to say everybody knows. Well, if everybody knows, tell us what they know. How did they learn it? How did they? If this is what all the intelligent people know, surely the intelligent people can help the rest of us see it and tell us why. It's fascinating to watch this massive attempt to do away with the King James Bible. And every generation has its group of people saying, this is the last generation for the King James Bible to be gone. You have a new group risen up in just the last few years saying, yeah, this is the time to abandon the King James Bible. This is the time to move on. And they think they discovered a new idea. I mean, I was hearing the same thing before these preachers were born. Say, why can't they just finally shut it down? Over a period of time, every time a new movement against the King James Bible arises, they're able to manipulate a number of our Bible colleges into changing position. But then new Bible colleges raise up who still hold to it. They label the preachers unscholarly and they, they tell us you're on the dustbin of history and nobody will go to your churches and, and you can't do this, you can't do that. The latest movement is actually saying that, that um, you know, if you, I was just rebuked on this within the last week by a person who walked in, heard me preach from the King James Bible. They said, why are you doing that? Nobody can lead anybody to Christ from the King James Bible because no one can understand it. So really, I spend time every week yeah. in happy, joyous, yeah. blessed churches using the King James Bible, reaching people for Christ, and, and raising people up in the things of the Lord. Yeah. I belong to a church like that. I would dare anybody to come to service and, and tell you that we were dead yeah. and dying. So why can't they replace the King James Bible? Priests of the believer. 
too many priests, not in the modernistic realm that believe in Christianity by salvation by works, but in those churches that are teaching salvation by faith, there are too many folks that won't let it go. They're not willing for it to be gone. God gives us the priesthood of the believer to assure that we still have a reliable, authoritative Bible as you see it by the way it withstands waves and waves of attempts to remove it and change it. Right. And people say, but, but, but it was copied. Yeah, but it's not copy, 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 copy. In uh, 1500s, they begin to copy it into English from the majority text. People say, well, it was an English Bible, another English Bible, another English Bible. Well, English Bible refined and then refined and then refined and then refined and it had been through these refinements until in 1604 they approached uh, King James in uh, Hampton Court and said, we want to do one final translation. See, translating the Bible, studying every word in depth, and translating it accurately was not a simple task. You didn't just sit down and do this in your spare time the way that translation after translation is done today by people who full-time professors somewhere and Monday nights they meet and they work on this for a couple years and they put this out. This was a full-time project building on the work of 85 years. Studying every word till a consensus of scholars could reach agreement on this word. And, and when I'm challenged, as I often am, say, well, better translation would be this, or it would be this. The guy says, well, I think it should be that. I tell them. I checked that out with 47 of the finest linguists that ever lived. And they all disagree with you, every single one. Most of the time, they have no idea what I just said. What I just said was I read my King James Bible. And I look at the qualifications of those men. And what exactly are your qualifications? Then you, you very, very condescending because you passed New Testament Greek with a C. And you're just thrilled because you graduated with that on your transcript. Not all that impressed. So there is the testimony of the centuries of the majority of believers that has kept for us. Say, but it's not a majority of the scholars. Again, I'm not so impressed with folks who label themselves as scholars. I'm not so impressed with folks who tell me they're the experts. It is the majority of believers in generation after generation that created the reason why the majority text is the majority text. This is what the majority were drawn to. When the Protestant Reformation came and men were looking to create new translations to be read by the average person in every country, these folks who were, for all the disagreements we Baptists might have with them, were professing believers, they all went to the majority text. Again and again in our day, and, and by the way, the debate we're having in the English world is not unique to the English world. 
in language after language, they're having the same debate. And, and it fascinates me to watch. And, and a lot of times folks say, well, we must be the only people going through this. Trust me, you're not. The debate never ends. But did God promise to maintain authoritative scripture for mankind? And folks, folks have made it a fundamental of faith, even in many fundamental circles. They made it a fundamental of faith that God didn't preserve all his words. So what scripture do you base that doctrine on? What's your authority for that? I've asked people, if it's a fundamental of faith, so we have these fundamentals, the Trinity and, and, and all so forth. So what scripture is it based on? And the answer I always get is, history is proven. To which I respond, whose version of history? Is a fundamental doctrine based on somebody's interpretation of history? All doctrine should be based on plain, clear, simple statements from the Word of God. That is what Baptists believe. I understand some people don't believe that. Some people like to call the scripture the final authority because they believe there are others. Some people believe their church is the final authority. I get all that. But Baptists don't really have an excuse because the first Baptist distinctive that marked us is different is that the Bible is the only authority. Somebody else that makes that mistake, I kind of understand it. Maybe they're influenced by their background. When Baptists make it, where in the world does it come from? We're defined by the Baptist distinctives, the first of which declares the Bible is our sole authority. Anything I believe about salvation has to come not from man's reason, but plain, clear statements of the Bible. So anything I believe about the doctrine of preservation cannot come from a learned doctor or a great professor. It must come from plain, clear statements of the Bible. And again, and again, and again, the Bible refers to its own preservation with the term forever. I wonder what that means. I've told folks I have an advantage. I'm a bus kid. I was reached when I was 10 years old. Brought to church, grew up. I just assumed the Bible was the Word of God. When I couldn't understand it, I didn't think there was a problem with the Bible or the translation. I thought it was because I was a kid and I was learning. Never assumed to pass judgment on it. And and I've said this about doctrinal issues. I say, you can fool a seminary professor who thinks that truth is established in the classroom. But bus kids grew up skeptical on the street to a degree, influenced by people outside the church. And when someone came along and said something to us that sounded really ridiculous but told us to believe it, we assumed it's because they were trying to scam us and we wondered what their angle was. (laughs) That has served me greatly in being a preacher, and in the study of these issues. Glory to God. When the Bible says forever, I have a bus kid's understanding of forever. I think it means forever. 
And if somebody tries to tell me forever means something different, I wonder what they're up to. And what exactly is their angle? Is the Bible reliable? Well, the arguments. But there aren't enough manuscripts. We accept everything else. In fact, historians, I, I thought this was fascinating studying for this. It's, it's not historians who question the historicity of Christ. It's too well established. There are too many testimonies. Too many people saw him. Too many people heard him. It's theologians with an agenda. Or non-Christians with an agenda who question his historical. We have more manuscripts, more credibility, more scrutiny than works that are accepted without question. And beyond that, we have the testimony, the massive transmission of the scripture from believers. By the way, not just that in... Um, that, but we also have the early versions. I've been to Syria and talked with my Syrian Christian friends who'll share with me what a blessing it is to read their Peshitta and read the King James Bible and see how they match. We have the ancient translation. We have the quotations of Scripture repeated in the old writers over and over again. But more than the massive transmission, we have the promise. The scripture cannot be broken. You want to know how long that promise is good for? Forever. God bless. Thank you.